Hello and welcome uh, to this, the first podcast um, by Charlie Ratton and myself, John Massey. Um, we are Astute New Energy um, and we're both involved in the renewable energy space. Um, the idea of these podcasts is really just to give you um, some insight into the kind of things that we chat about. Hopefully you'll learn a few things along the way. Hopefully um, you'll be prompted to comment as well. Um, astute, uh, between the two of us, we both um, do various consulting and advisory work in the sector. So obviously, um, by all means, contact us if any of the things we talk about grab your attention. Um, yeah. well, hello, everybody. It's uh, Charlie here. Just like to echo John's uh, John's remarks. We've worked well together in the last three or four years, and we thought that some of the subjects that we chat about may uh, may be of interest to the wider energy community. <laughs> You just want to say who you are, Charlie. Just want to do like a thirty yeah, seconds. Yeah, I've um, I've been I'm a bit of a veteran in the energy field. I've worked for uh, Shell for many years. I moved across, ended up uh, with uh, with Eon, and uh, Eon took me into offshore wind, and then uh, I, I built a wind farm in uh, in Cornwall. So I've been the feet on the ground person, and uh, more recently I've been up in uh, in Scotland working on uh, major offshore projects for. SSE. Uh, since uh, last about three or four years ago, John and I linked up, and we've taught. We've uh, we've uh, delivered a number of wind courses over the years, including America, and uh, more recently in uh, Canada. We just felt that some of the things that we discussed might uh, might be of interest to uh, to the wider energy community. We look forward to hearing your views on on that. Yeah, and as as for me, um, I've been. I try and avoid calling myself a veteran. It just makes me sound old. But anyway, <laughs> um, I'm I am quite old. Um, <laughs> anyway, I've um, I've been involved in um, really industry research, market research, um, strategy planning um, type things in in technology. Not not always in in energy. Um, I was involved in the mobile sector for a number of years, um, but then for the last kind of 15 years or so, um, involved particularly in energy and specifically in in renewable renewable power sector, renewable electricity generation. Uh, so these days I, I track uh, renewables of, of various types, um, particularly offshore wind here in the UK, um, but also um, solar a bit more globally and and the things that we need to kind of integrate those. So I also track things like energy storage um, and more recently how the integration of electric vehicle charging is going to affect the whole kind of grid system. So I think between the two of us, we kind of bring kind of complementary um, layers of expertise, hopefully. Yeah, there seems to be a lot going on in the uh, the sector there, uh, John. It seems to be a whole uh, uh, part of the bigger sustainability agenda. We've talked about uh, renewables in there and wind and uh, some of the wider things. And it seems to be uh, very current. It's uh, when, when I started for many years, electricity was a bit of a dull industry to be uh, uh, considered to be in, but uh, not now. It seems to be a lot of interest in, uh, from the wider uh, industrial community and what's what's happening in our sector. So hopefully that will be echoed by some of our, our listeners. Yeah. So um, to kick off today, um, we kind of decided to have a look particularly at offshore wind, um, because that's obviously a big thing here in the UK. It's something that we're both very familiar with, um, having um, worked in it um, and, and trained on it. Um, but also we thought we'd kind of contrast that with the fortunes of nuclear in this country at the moment. Um, they're both obviously big, um, low carbon power generating sources, um, a bit different to 
solar and, and onshore wind to some extent um and they're also big scale projects they're both they have some common features they're low carbon they're very big scale lots of infrastructure lots of big grid connections um and as, as particularly charlie will talk about lots of kind of employment supply chain benefits and so on um but obviously very different fortunes at, at the moment yeah that's uh, that's right i think um that offshore wind is something of the new kid in the uh, in the block. Uh, the UK industry has only really been going around about 15, 16 years, and it started quite small, round one schemes, and that's built up. They've uh, obviously proved and they've sent a message out as offshore wind has, has, has grown. I think the feeling at government level is that it's been a big uh, success story, and it's uh, gathered a bit of uh, momentum. We'll talk a little bit uh, later on about uh, some of the sectoral uh, consultations and deals emerging, but uh, nuclear has been around a lot longer. Uh, it's an established player. It's, it's in there. It has around about 20% of the UK energy mix, uh, and there are a few plans uh, for for nuclear going forward. But uh, perhaps uh, we'll contrast and uh, compare the perhaps the the dynamic trajectory of uh, of offshore renewables in particular, and where nuclear in the UK might be going as well. Yeah. Um, do, do you want to kick off by um, just summarising where, where offshore is, um, where it is now, and, and in particular where it's going over the next kind of 10 years or so? Yeah, well, um, you and I were both in the, the States a couple of years ago, John, and uh, there was a bit of gloom around the uh, political landscape at the time. But the Americans now do seem to have gained uh, traction in building up uh, an industry. But they're one of a number of countries now uh, entering the market. We've got Japan, we've Korea, India, South Africa, uh, floating wind is uh, coming in, opening up new markets as well, Norway, Baltic, you name it, and people seem to be coming into the offshore uh, field. Um, there's been some good news for offshore wind in that the costs uh, associated uh, with the, the transmission of electricity have, have plummeted. And there's a reverse bidding kind of system in place in which you try and build out the, uh, the, the, the facilities at the lowest cost, and that has had a, a, a significant impact in driving the cost down. So when hard-headed money people look at the costs and they look at the cost of offshore wind, um, it is coming in extremely favourable. So the costs of offshore wind are coming, it's mature, uh, the banks are increasingly confident, it's not without risk, of course. New tech has come in, new uh, bigger turbines have come in, uh, innovations on the electrical side, uh, the supply chain is engaged. And I think it's a, a, it's an exciting stage. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more a little bit later about the sector deal, but um, I think it's on the cusp of a quantum leap. What And what kind of volumes uh, roll out are we talking about, do you think, over the yeah, next? It started slow in the UK, which is perhaps a world leader, and, and the original round one schemes, trial schemes, looking back with 30 turbine schemes, couple of 90 megawatt wind farms built out in the UK. They're still there, still operational. Uh, but looking now at the figures that have been uh, uh, banded about in the industry for the size of generation, um, you'll find that a, a typical scheme might now be towards one gigawatt, which is at least 10 times the size of schemes that are considered large only 10, 15 years ago. So there's been a tenfold increase in perhaps the size of uh, projects. Uh, the costs have come down. Uh, the principles are exactly the same for a 90 megawatt wind farm as a 900 megawatt wind farm. It's just a scaling 
exercise. Uh, and uh, sometimes economies of scale help. You know, buying power is increased, the cost of vessels doesn't necessarily go up exponentially, and uh, the, the, the sheer size of it encourages the supply chain to, uh, to innovate, come up with, uh, with, with um, economies on their side. Uh, so from the original 90 megawatt schemes, which a number were built out, the, I think we're up to about 10 gigawatts now, approaching 10 gigawatts built out in UK waters, perhaps the leading country in, in, in the world, which is always heartening to see. But 10 gigawatts, and that's guilt out. But I think there's a feeling now that um, to keep that level of, uh, of rapid expansion, that the, the government needs to support it in the wider sense. And that's where the sector deal does come in. And it boils down to a, a guaranteed supply chain, really. I think the feeling is in the industry, we've got this 10 gigs, but we'd like to get up to 30 gigs by 2030. These nice round figures that our industry uh, seems to like. Uh, so to get to uh, 30 gigs by uh, 2030. Now, 2030 is only 10, 11 years off. And we're talking about trebling where we are today. Uh, so yeah. we've said that the state has been rapid already. Uh, you can imagine how rapid it's going to be to treble it from 10 years. And these are mega projects. They take time to get away. So that's the scale of it. A trebling in the UK from an already impressive base uh, uh, within a decade. Yeah. Now, and, I mean, one, that's one of the things that I suppose is, is kind of different with, with offshore wind um, to some of the other. Within renewables, often there's a lot of talk about distributed energy and smaller scale projects and having them closer to demand and that kind of stuff. I mean, in many ways, offshore, offshore wind kind of fits to some extent more in kind of the old big centralized power generation model in as in as much as it, it just makes sense if you're going to start having boats and foundations and all the stuff that goes with that supply chain setup and so on just makes sense to do these things bigger rather than rather than smaller um and it's every two years isn't it the auction that auctions that in the uk the government have committed to. yeah and, and that's another factor what what the government has said is that they want these to be um Reg, reg, apologies for the background noise. I'm just going to try with the bar noise on the background. I'm just fiddling around in the background. Can always be recorded. But you're dead right. And, and rather than coming gluts, we don't want to, in, in the old days, it was like five megawatts or five gigawatts available in 2000 and blah. They said, well, look, rather than do that, we need to keep these guys employed. We need to keep the vessel operators. We need to keep the supply chain. And they want continuous work. They don't want to be boom or bust. So the government has yep. said, well, look, how about we go to get to these 30 30? which is a trebling within 10 years, how about we divvy that up in over perhaps a decade and make two gigawatts available every year, which everybody likes. So if you fail on this round, you might put a bid in, but you might want to tweak it and then go into the next round. You always know as a developer that even if you fail to get your CFD or support, there'll be another chance. And that will encourage people that think, oh, a bit dispiriting, we missed out. But there'll always be another chance. So mm. to get that level of sustained all-party commitments. It's, it's, it's like you say, it's from the old mega-project days, almost redolent of the 1970s. Uh, industrial strategies have gone a little bit out of fashion with, uh, with Mrs Thatcher and so forth. But because it's large-scale, this is not boutique. This is industrialised. It's long-term. And I think another factor is that these projects are now coming in over 60 years' length. So there's two projects encompassing the leasing round, and uh, that's to enable a repower uh, and that means it's sustained investment. So if you're a port and you're thinking, well, this isn't just two or three years construction. This is, if you've got the ops and maintenance, something that is in for the long haul 
and will be around for 60 years, almost in perpetuity in, in energy terms, which is significant for investor confidence. Yeah, and, and also I think from a from a policy point of view, um, certainly here in the UK, if you look at where these these port facilities are being are being built and where the jobs are being created and so on, I mean, from my point of view, a massive reason why um, government support is behind it, even though, I mean, it is still more expensive per megawatt hour than onshore wind and potentially even than solar, is simply that it's creating jobs in the right places. So it's creating, tending to create jobs in places where unemployment was high because previous maritime industries have been on the decline. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's, offshore wind in particular has a big kind of socio-economic story around it, which I think is important. To in, uh, heart, rather than just the kind of spreadsheet finance economics of it. Yeah. I was in Grimsby last week, John, and uh, the, the, the scale of the uh, development on the uh, on the old fish docks, which is being redeveloped. You've got major international companies, Eon were there, Res, Orsted, massive SOV vessel facilities were uh, there. And part of the government's uh, nascent industrial strategy is just that. It's trying to say, well, look, London's had the, uh, the benefits, it's had the... Uh, support, if you like, with the major projects, but other parts of the country deserve it too. Um, Grimsby, we were both in Hull just before Christmas, yeah, uh, Dundee, uh, Liverpool, Workington, all these places perhaps feel as though they've missed out a little bit, but they're extremely well placed now uh, to, to, to benefit from, uh, from, from sustained government support, which is, uh, it looks as though it's, it's, it's just about signed off, and it, it could be an, excite an exciting place for these uh, often, ra ra rather kind of um, uh, a little bit dispiriting uh, fishing trends in the last 15, 20 years, and it gives them an opportunity to uh, to, to re big re jig with with major mega projects and, and sustained in the long term. Yeah, and also um, with the um, you're starting to see now, I think I think greater synergies in terms of the oil and gas side, because oil and gas has obviously been on the decline. Um, and so some of the, the service industries and support industries that were involved in that, um, you're starting to see now kind of repurpose or see opportunities to use their expertise um, in, in offshore wind instead. And I think, uh, especially with floating wind, you can see that, uh, um, that they seem to be freer of the depth constraints that uh, sometimes are hampered nearshore projects but the companies are now looking at what well, could floating wind uh, turbines or farms be uh, sited next to existing oil and gas and decarbonize that field which is slightly counterintuitive that uh, fossils could actually be decarbonized uh, to, 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 to an extent and behind the scenes also there's some carbon capture things that might tie into the bigger picture uh, as well there might be synergies as we start to uh, to promote a little bit it's, it's, it's had yeah i mean that, that certainly Certainly, I mean, we we both talked to each other about hydrogen, for example, and certainly um, on my side, the, the big part of hydrogen is going to be carbon capture and storage in the, in any short term um, because of the way hydrogen's produced. But yeah, maybe that's a future podcast. Um, to, yeah, that sounds uh, uh, that sounds intriguing, uh, <laughs> John. I'm sure that uh, the uh, strategists on the major oil companies yeah. and perhaps we'll make a note oh, to sell yeah. to, uh, to, to to pursue that. Except so to, to our audience to decide, yeah. I suppose, what, what what they would like to hear more of. But certainly that does sound uh, intriguing. And it's, it's not without foundation. I was at Shell for many years. The renewables po portion of Shell was actually not called Shell Renewables. It was called Shell Renewables and Hydrogen. And that was 15 years ago. So perhaps they knew something back then. 
uh, about the way that the trends were uh, potentially going to uh, to develop coming back in, yeah. into offshore big style. So on on the others we've mentioned at the start. So so offshore winds looking looking um, pretty positive. There's lots happening. There seems to be lots of fairly stable cross-party government support. It's it's creating jobs in the right places and so on. Um, I, I guess we should briefly, as we said at the start, compare that with nuclear because. In many ways, yeah. nuclear, again, big centralised power generation um, in the places where it's um, at least proposed to be built. Um, you have a, a kind of mix of, of kind of anti, anti-nuclear, anti but a lot of, lot of pro-nuclear because of job creation. And again, a lot of um, issues around construction jobs um, from a policy level, um, interest around supply chain and, and kind of nucle- not losing nuclear expertise seems to be a big part of it. So there's, yeah. there's some similarities there. Um, there's also, I mean, there's also a big similarity that it's low carbon electricity. And in fact, looking at the numbers in 2018, it was it was 21% of low carbon electricity, which is, is more than wind and solar was combined. And it's about it's almost half of our total low carbon electricity. So it's a kind of, it's in a kind of a, it's an odd place. I would say it's, if you look at the plants currently, um, about half of the capacity that we have now is due to close within about six years, um, and almost all of it is due to be gone by 2030. Um, so the, the the two, I would say, the two are kind of all tied together a little bit because if if we do allow nuclear to um, to reducing capacity, that's a big chunk of low carbon um, generation that has to be replaced. Um, and certainly looking at the direction of travel in the UK, offshore wind is gonna have to fill a big part of that, a big, that's gonna be quite a big hole to fill. Yeah. So, I mean, what's, what's your at, view of nuclear and where it's, where it's yeah, heading? Yeah, no, I, I concur with that. A few things that I've learned about in my, in my side. First of all, it might be worth saying that coal is just about off the grid now, and that's yeah, yeah, yeah. the very baseline. Gone. So that leaves, a baseline gap and wind for its various variability was never really considered a player in the baseline field. Perhaps you can uh, share some of your learnings on the energy yeah, storage yeah. Uh, side that uh, either in this or future uh, discussion, uh, John. But there's been some changes on the storage. Electricity is used in real time. It traditionally was. A few things might be changing that. Uh, I did hear that Greg Clark is now saying that the energy trilemma is now solved, which is almost a seismic statement, and especially when it comes from the um, the business sec- secretary, it was almost 180 degrees opposite to what we were saying just a few short years ago. Now, nuclear uh, it was supported. I mean, Tony Blair started the discussion again, and it's going to be uh, a new nuclear with uh, with Hinkley and Moorside and uh, Wilford, and the, the government was prepared to support it. Theresa May promised. Uh, I think the Chinese that there would be support, but things seem to have lost a little bit of momentum. I was at Eon; we had a joint venture, uh, uh, Horizon, and then I think that went. Uh, I think Hitachi then got involved, and that seems to have gone. Well, perhaps you tell us more, John. I've heard the names of Moorside yeah. and Wilfer, yes. and they seem to have not gone particularly well. Yeah, I mean, a, a quick, I mean, summary. Um, the most, I mean, in the UK, we've we've got. The the only new one currently, I suppose if you like, actually actively in construction, I guess, is is Hinkley C, uh, which has been a bit notorious. Um, I mean, it's about a decade. It's going to be about a decade late compared to when originally they were talking about it coming online. Um, 
it's it's using a technology which doesn't have a stellar record of of being <laughs> built on time to a non budget. Um, if they sort if they sort that out and get it built, um, it's got a it's coming at a very high price. It's got uh, an index linked um, energy price of ninety two point five pounds per megawatt hour. Now that's index linked from twenty twelve, I believe. Um, so that's already if it was. To start today, it'd be more than a hundred pounds per megawatt hour uh, for thirty-five years guarantee. So it's so it's expensive stuff. Uh, that uh, I think the latest I've seen is that's probably going to go live maybe twenty twenty-six, twenty twenty-seven. Um, other than that, size we'll see in Suffolk um, is um, the, the site is there. I think there's still very. I'm not entirely sure. Where in the planning and permitting process that is, but that's that's sort of the next one, and then there's there's Bradwell B, um, also down in the southeast in in Essex. But um, but most recently we've had um, Moorside, Albury, and then and then Wilfer, which was the Horizon um, one, have been and shelved. And if you look at the Wilfer one, that was the one in Anglesey. Um, that that was cancelled. They couldn't find a business case for it, even even though they were talking about up to £75 per megawatt hour price. Um, and the government, from a financial point of view, were talking about taking a third equity stake in it and providing all of the debt financing. So, I mean, you, you probably couldn't get more favourable kind of financing and, and pricing terms these days, and, and they still couldn't find a case for it. So, I mean, the, the problem for... There is an issue with nuclear. I mean, I my feeling is probably the ones that are open currently, um, their closure dates will just be pushed back. Um, there'll be a bit of refurb and a bit of extension of life will need to go on. Um, but it's very difficult at the moment to see where new build is going to come from, um, certainly in terms of private sector investment, simply because yeah, the, the uh... business case isn't there. Uh, the, uh, I, I came across uh, Hunterston, which has got a number of nuclear facilities. There's uh, Hunterston A, which has been decommissioned, and nobody's quite sure how much that is going to cost or when it's going to fi uh, finish, which is certainly of interest to the uh, to the Scottish uh, government. Uh, every couple of years, they, uh, they renew it for a couple of years, but there are a couple of issues with uh, Hunterston B, uh, I gather, as well. So I get the feeling that in Scotland, at least, I wouldn't be uh, rushing to... Uh, Rushing to uh, to invest. I mean, uh, looking dispassionately, it would say that um, uh, what's offshore wind coming out sixty seven pounds as opposed to the ninety or so that you've. Uh, yeah, you've well, I think I think that's and it's not there's no decommissioning cost. In fact, decommissioning mm. would be a bit of an opportunity in uh, in in offshore wind. They're now looking at the supply chain and they're looking at uh, end to end strategies, including uh, de uh, deconstruction and then repowering, of, of course, as well. So. We've got a situation where now uh, even other renewables are being cannibalised by uh, offshore wind. Uh, I'm thinking of the Swansea Bay tidal uh, facility, mm -hmm. which does seem to come into the mega project um, bracket. I've been reading about HS2 in the last uh, week or so. That doesn't seem to be the most secure long-term investment in all quarters. We've seen uh, the Swansea Bay go, and I would have thought that on the major project side, where you need all party support to make them happen, uh, there must be there must be doubts. I do suspect that there might be coming back to your knowledge retention. I think that might be a strong uh, argument, but other than civil reasons as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the thing with nuclear. I think from a 
there's the I mean there's obviously the arguments about kind of base load power which we can maybe touch on um, briefly because then if we're gonna if it's not going to happen then we have to think about that from an offshore wind point of view um but I mean the the cold hard economics at the moment are with offshore wind I, I believe people are looking at kind of 55 56 pounds per megawatt hour potentially for the next uh, next rounds that that kind of that kind of number um I mean if nuclear is half as much again or double that and and you can't get it built for 10 years um it's very hard from an investor's point of view to see um <clears throat> see how that's going to be going to be done um i think it's either going to have to be they're either going to have to be strategic kind of government funded massively subsidized projects um or if it's left to the market they're going to be replaced by other things um it's going to be a mix of um <clears throat> it's going to be in the uk large chunk of offshore wind and then other technologies um to make sure that you can you can do the right right balancing and so on so i think that's the challenge for nuclear and as but as you say i think where it won't just come down to the um the financial spreadsheet it'll come down to particularly from a government support point of view how important things like um job creation um skills retention um and and so on um, come into play so so i think they're both i think both sectors are kind of there's some big differences and but there's also some big similarities from a understanding the kind of risk opportunity side because it's not just about the technology or the financial um, economics it's also in a big part around the kind of strategic and supply chain and, and policy positioning of the of the two things yeah um, a couple of things to build on one thing that uh, i've picked up on the uh, on the circuit if you like is the government's export uh, potential for offshore mm. wind obviously the uk has been uh, a leader you know, getting uh, scenarios where Humber is uh, is one of the world's, if not the world's largest uh, offshore wind cluster. And the Humber has, has grasped that. The, the head of it said this is the biggest transformation in the history of Grimsby. And uh, they're now going abroad and selling the skill set and selling the engineering expertise yep. that yep. They've, uh, they've developed. So export-wise, I think offshore wind is in a favourable uh, position. Coming back yeah, to the IP sure. side of, uh, of, of uh, nuclear, and I'd be interested in this almost from a geopolitical perspective. Obviously, we are in the top table of when it comes to nuclear powers. We are at the top table of the UN, and sometimes you have to uh, show commitment to uh, to maintain that global position. And I just wonder whether that's one of the hidden drivers, if you like. That uh, yeah, that, that, I'm sure it is. I mean, from a from an export point of view, the problem, the, the other problem with nuclear is, we're, if you like, we're importing technology. We're, we're not, we're not using British designs. We're we're using French French designs, um, potentially Korean, future even Chinese designs. Um, so yeah, that's that probably plays against it. I've certainly heard that as a an argument against it is that um, we're, we might create some construction jobs, but actually um, the the ownership, the financing, the technology is is actually external. Whereas with with offshore wind, I mean, again, offshore wind is, I guess, a good analogy is with the oil industry. You, I think, my understanding, I don't know numbers, but I think the UK oil and gas industry um, earns multiples now from consulting and services expertise that it exports around the world compared to actual earnings from 
oil and gas physically out of the ground. So, um, so yeah, certainly in offshore wind, that, that, that the same idea. Even if we don't build turbines here and build kits here to export, um, the knowledge and the expertise and the service side is potentially a massive um, growth area. Well, if you, I mean, if you if you think about our own experience, if you, if you could call us trailblazers, if you uh, like, we've we've been out to the United States. Yeah, uh, obviously we'd like uh, to. <laughs> we've we, we, we've been out to uh, to Calgary uh, together, and um, it, the, the appetite does seem to be then that we're just one small portion of a of a much bigger uh, a bigger picture. And I think I think that is is absolutely right. The government is now seeing this as a potential winner. Especially in the post-Brexit uh, environment, where nobody's mm. quite sure of anything, I would have thought if I was uh, saw a piece on the television about Airbus, which I'm not surprised that that's going to feel the heat now, looking at where that that project is uh, is administered, and uh, HS2, another mega project that is perhaps uh, being scrutinised, and perhaps the heat will be slightly off, unusually, because it's not been the case for the last 15 mm. years, slightly off uh, offshore wind, the uh, the support. It's almost come through the blind side, if you like, or so that other things have happened, and this has plodded away in the background, and suddenly people have realised that there's that potential and the multiples that yeah. you, you mentioned. Yeah, and I think it's also important, as you say, that um, people looking to get into it, supply chain and so on, um, it's UK, I mean, we are we're the biggest offshore wind market, but it's going to grow very rapidly in other in other places um place i mean in place like india only really just started talking about it um big potential the states taken ages to get going but huge potential um there's lots of areas of the world where um offshore wind can grow quite quickly and so if you can if you can get experience and get involved in in the uk sector but also while keeping an eye on the export opportunities, then then certainly it's going to be a, it's going to be a big market going forward. Uh, I say. It's, it's not, it's, yeah, and it's not one we necessarily expected. Uh, the floating the floating wind turbines have opened up areas of seabed. We more or less put red lines across now. It's too deep, can't do difficult because of that. Uh, but that's opened up, and and, and again we've seen battery storage uh, on onshore. Uh, although the onshore offshore guys have uh, thought about it as as well, and they're combining now with integrated projects. So offshore wind. I mentioned that it was only 15, 16 years old in the UK for uh, for, mm. for delivery, but it's actually transformed within it. The turbines are treble the size they originally envisaged. We're linking up with other tech that are uh, going into seabeds that we've ruled out is absolutely impossible. And the floating winds say, well, actually, let's, we, we like the stuff that you thought was impossible. That's where we uh, we start. So it's a very dynamic, and it's perhaps another contrast with nuclear. I feel that the nuclear perhaps uh, it's, it's not as innovative, it's not as dynamic, it's still got the decommissioning aspect, which is, mm. is usually pushed into the uh, into the long grass and ignored. But there was a bailout for nuclear decommissioning about 10 years ago, which has yeah, yeah. been forgotten. Uh, but uh, I, I suspect that that's not going to be the case for offshore wind. And um, yeah. it's a case of whether Britain wants to stay at the forefront, and I suspect this is why there's a sector deal, or whether it just wants to become complacent and a, and a player in the bigger field. But I suspect. Yeah. No, I think I think the innovation thing is important. I think the, I mean, my view, it's got a hunch more than evidence based. But going forwards, I mean, I'm I'm not. I'd be fairly bearish on the on these mega scale nuclear projects. I mean, Hinkley Point is going to be about twenty billion or something. I mean, that's a lot. It's a lot of single point financial risk it's a lot of money to put on one project that so all that money is dependent on the on the risk around that project and when as we know the risk is not just 
technical, financial, there's political, local opposite. I mean, there's all sorts of things that come into it. Um, so nuclear needs, I think, to go forwards on a on a big growth scale, nuclear needs, at least in markets like the UK, um, some developing markets may be slightly different, but it needs it needs innovation. It needs something new. Um, there are projects and the UK government actually is quite keen. Um, they've, I think, is it 200 million of funding um, into what they call small modular reactors, um, which is, um, as the name suggests, it's reactors where you, you churn out a, a standard design from a factory. So you're not building these um, these massive mega projects on sites where each project is different and customized for the site and so on. You basically build modular reactors in a factory. So you get the economies of scale, the economies of manufacturing to drive costs down. And then you just bring them to site, set them up um, and, and off you go. Um, so it's the, it's the I think that's what the model T of the nuclear uh, yeah, well, uh, that, that I guess so. proved uh, effective in offshore where everything was tailored and different pylons and different piling and different uh, uh, kind of pieces for the, for the offshore wind that drove the cost up. But as that's come out, this worked, bash it out. But, and then and it becomes yeah, yeah. industrial rather than boutique. And perhaps that's, that's perhaps an interesting direction of, uh, of travel. Obviously, they would all need permitting and they'd all need uh, assessing. So it could be an yeah, interesting yeah. I mean, uh, uh, trajectory. And you'd presumably yeah. need community buying for them. There's a, and the there's a whole bunch. I think there's a whole bunch of kind of legal regulatory testing um, and loopholes to go through it's very early stage i don't think we're going to see any of those for at least a, a decade um but then again we're not going to see hinkley for another six or seven years so um so, so but yeah i think in the long term future that's where i can see some growth so try and, and, and tilted our own question it seems to be nuclear seems to be moving along at snails snails pace in yeah. comparison some of the offshore wind. I've even been hearing things that the offshore wind grid, rather than rebuild a national grid onshore, that the offshore wind farms are such mega structures and of such a size and heft that actually we'll be taking the entire future national grid offshore and it'll just come onshore at certain points and the, the grid itself will be transformed. Uh, uh, very different from a, 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 the mega traditional projects of old mm. power stations uh, as, as, and, and avoid some of the issues through national parks and things like that. So the grid itself, I'm suggesting, has now been impacted by the sheer scale of the offshore offshore ambition. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I, that sort of kind of brings us on to, because obviously if we're thinking, well, nuclear looks a bit, it's struggling a bit, um, some of the capacity is going to go offline. Um, if it's going to struggle to be replaced with new capacity for various reasons, um, at least in the foreseeable future, um, technology changes might uh, might improve that going forwards. Um, but then obviously we have to think about, um, it's obviously not a straight swap because nuclear we tend to run as kind of base load, very high capacity back to plants um, offshore by its nature is, is more of a variable resource. Um, although I have to, I, have, I saw there was a government, um, I can't remember which report it was, some some government report, when they were looking at the projects, um, the offshore projects for kind of the mid-20s, they were talking about load factors up at kind of 60%. So, I mean, that's a very different story than onshore. Yeah. Well, uh, I know in our courses, John, we talk about the arcane world of S-curves and duck curves and dispatchability and things like that. And do you think it could be said that offshore wind is moving towards dispatchability because uh, that could be a game changer as well. If Greg Clark is saying that the energy trilemma 
which for those that haven't come across it, we've got to keep the lights on. That's a number one priority. And wind, with its variability, wasn't necessarily considered the best for that. But as we indicated earlier, tech is coming along, and those figures seem remarkable from where we were, 20 22% in some of the cases, to trebled. In yeah, I mean, I, I think that that those sixty percent load factors—they're not. It's not. That's not any storage or anything. That's just simply the the fact that the um, the sites offshore, offshore wind as a resource is is much steadier. But also, in particular, because the technology, the operations, the design of the blades, the just the way these these turbines operate these days—they're just it's the sheer efficiency of the uh, yeah. They managed to eat yeah, out more yeah. energy from them. Um, I mean, you've still got. You've still got the variability. So I, I think, I mean, I, I think the other thing about offshore wind is that it, by its nature, it's going to have to drive other industries with it. Um, I mean, I think, obviously, battery, you know, the battery storage is, is growing quite quite substantially. Uh, but I don't think that's, that's not going to be the solution to all the variability issue because some of it will just be longer duration than um, that would make sense with, with batteries because you, you still get, these periods we have several days when when wind is, is fairly slow um but i mean as you pointed out i think the grid thing is important um there was it was just recently an, another new interconnector opened between the uk yeah. was it belgium oh, God, yeah. i've got that wrong um there's yeah, a, a is, is is very large and as you say i think offshore grid um so i think that's going to be a big part of it so we've touched on a whole heap of uh, implications uh, today. We've tried to look at dispassionate uh, view. We've said that uh, obviously offshore wind is very dynamic. Uh, nuclear seems to be plodding along. Uh, there are bigger implications. We've talked about supply chain. We've talked about government political support. Is there anything that we've missed, John? That we uh, that we think we should. What else is what else is uh, is offshore wind? Uh, well, I mean, I think there's a whole bunch of things we can take up. In, in some future podcasts. Um, I mean, as I say, to go back to the variability thing, I think there's a whole thing, bunch of things we can talk about there. Um, storage, not just short-term storage batteries, but also that ties in with things like potentially hydrogen, longer-term storage. Um, interconnection, the design of the grid is another one. And, th and then also the other way to cope with variability is, is not just on the supply side, but is on the demand side. So demand management, demand response, um, yeah. That, that kind of stuff so i think that i mean it's a big it's there's a whole bunch of issues around how if we're going to grow um offshore wind or in fact and any of the other onshore wind or, or solar would be the same there's a whole bunch of things we can talk about in terms of flexibility um that you need to do decarbonization um and I, I, that's one of the i think that's one of the great things is that about trying to understand this sector is if you if you just try and focus on one specific, um, you're going to miss really the direction of travel. The bigger, the bigger, the bigger picture as well. About the system. One one thing that we always uh, drummed into as an Eon, it was uh, look if you if you're into wind energy, why just explain it to if you, just imagine your granny's in the room and she's heard about wind energy. <laughs> I suppose the thing that sprung to mind is that there's actually no fuel. You don't need any fuel to fire fire these. Uh, these turbines it's not even like hydro where you need water the wind mm. is there it's not going to run out so the fuel is indeed abundant and renewable it's a case of harvesting and it harvesting it effectively and some of the capacity figures that you mentioned indicated that we're well there are various 
formulas and, uh, and, and, and ways of measuring how much wind you can extract from certain areas. But we seem to be, we've gone from uh, 20 odd percent when I started in wind to 60 percent you were mentioning there, trebling mm. of harvesting of the, uh, the resource. Now, I'm not well enough informed on the nuclear side to know where the physical fuel, whether it's an extractive process, whether it needs imports, whether it needs a carbon chain in its own right to get the, uh, the materials. And of course, the, uh, the decommissioning elements as well, which I touched upon slightly before, which I'm not sure has been has been resolved. Is, is there any progress on decommissioning? Well, I mean, there's a, f a few things there. So on the fuel side, I mean, the advantage of nuclear is it needs very little fuel. Um, so, I mean, there's obviously a an extractive industry part of it. Um, you need to you need to extract uranium ore. You need to um, process it. Um, but the actual amount of fuel you need for the electricity you get out of it is is pretty tiny, um, which is why. So I mean, there's two things. I mean, decommissioning of the plants themselves. Um, I mean, that's where that's happening. It's obviously a phenomenally expensive thing to do. Um, I'm not. I, I, I'm not. An expert in terms of how the con what the contractual arrangements for that would be. For example, with Hinkley C, um, what's written into the legal agreements um, in terms of decommissioning requirements or having funds available for those requirements. I think the fear it would be, or the, <laughs> the fair assumption would be that if it gets to the point um, when these things do need decommissioning, um, if the company decides, well, we haven't got enough money to do it, we'll just walk away, then it's basically the taxpayers left on the hook because you can't just leave these things to um, <clears throat> to kind of crumble away because um, the, there's obviously a, a safety aspect to it as well. So I think that's one where people might be a bit cynical about where those decommissioning costs lie. Um, and then the other bit is, is the waste aspects of the fuel, the used fuel um as i say that i think that's a fairly small amount um at the moment most of it sits in caskets um next to the power plants um i think some of it um <clears throat> might get sent away to be reprocessed elsewhere um there's been lots of schemes to try and bury it underground and so on um usually that runs into into local opposition so i mean i think there's all sorts of there's all sorts of factors around um around nuclear um that obviously don't exist with um with wind i don't i don't think they're necessarily insurmountable um i think things like decommissioning are so far in the forward as far in the future that there may be something in in the contractual obligations but um i'm not sure it's some if again if i'm being slightly cynical i suspect it's not something that um people now necessarily um, worry too much about if we're talking 60 70 years in the future that's kind of going to be somebody else's problem um it's just that yeah. I, I, been involved in a lot of offshore wind projects and at the start it used to be decommissioning you just put a little thing oh we'll put a decommissioning plan in but we'll put that three three years in before the expiry of the contract uh, of, the, of, the, of the facility which might be 20 years down the line so nobody really thinks about it other than saying we'll address it in due course but now stakeholders are demanding quite a bit of detail obviously there's jobs involved in decommissioning there's vessels involved it was mm. traditionally seen as the reverse of construction not always the case as kit uh, kit moves on i can only imagine that those very same stakeholders will start asking the same uh, of other 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 energy uh, other energy yeah. sources i'm yeah. not sure when he's doing no, this been, why, why, where's yours yeah well, that's an interesting point yeah okay well I've, we've probably rambled on for quite a while um <laughs> there's plenty of plenty of topics for to discuss 
in the future. Um, we've, we've touched on a few of them there. Things like hydrogen, carbon capture, storage, flexibility, um, decommissioning, supply chain. Cannibalizing other renewables. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we've we've not even mentioned things like solar today. Um, or indeed, or, uh, onshore wind, which is uh, onshore, not, every, not not everywhere's got uh, abundant coastline and uh, yep. sea. Yeah, but so that doesn't mean that wind hasn't got its role in some in some states. Yeah. So yeah, so plenty of plenty of scope for future sessions. Um, so uh, shall we wrap up wrap up there for today? Well, I hope our listeners uh, enjoyed our musings there. That was uh, something rambling on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And if you um, a value for them, I'm sure that they'll let us yeah. know if they feel as though we've been a little bit verbose. But uh, forgive us, please. If, it's our first yeah. first first venture out of the uh, out of the classroom and into the into the broadcast world. Yep. And if any of those issues interested you and you want to get in touch with us um, to discuss any of them further, then um, then please do so. Um, our website address is www.astutenewenergy.com uh, so yeah, yeah. so they're all well, find us on linkedin yeah we'd welcome we'd welcome we don't want to be existing in isolation some of our most effective times have been when we're in front of people and the questions start and then a debate starts and that's what that is we're in a very exciting state we know that but we welcome uh, your comments and if you think uh, the, the ideas of, of your own that you think we should encompass i'm sure that john and i would be look very favorably on uh, making a future podcast around those ideas okay that's enough for today thanks very much thank you bye-bye